And so we come to the final line of the Apostles' Creed. And for the last time, let's read through this creed and we'll get into it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. Hallelujah. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. These are foundational to the faith. In the early creeds, we see what in fact were the primary doctrines, the things that people held on to tightly, what possessed our hope. Last week, Isaac talked about the forgiveness of sins. Now, the forgiveness of sins is the gateway into which we have this beautiful, restored relationship with God. It is the gateway by which we take hold of hope, by which we walk in faith, and all those things. It's how God creates culture in our world, how he's redeeming creation is through the forgiveness of sin, because it was sin that brought violence and death into this world. And so the forgiveness of sin is necessary. But the forgiveness of sin is not our final hope. There is a reward. As I said earlier, the forgiveness of sin is the gateway into which God builds the new creation. Isaac and I had a very brief conversation after his message last week, and he wanted to talk a bit more about that final hope. But that is actually what this message is about today. The final line reads, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. There's been other messages that I've preached and I've gone on and on about embodied life and how God made us. <laughs> Almost belabored the point. But that is our hope. When you take a long survey, the narrative of scripture, you find this culmination at the end where God brings together all of creation, raises us to new life. Sin and death are completely defeated and righteousness dwells with God and with his people and everything is good. It's the happily ever after. And so let's explore this idea of resurrection, glorification, and what is eternal life. So if you could turn with me please to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This message is going to be about the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why of resurrection. Okay? So we're going to go through these items throughout the scriptures, and we'll, we'll look at these specific aspects. So starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read verses 20 and 22. 20 to 22, rather, sorry. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And let's read 23 and 24. But, a big but here, each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. So this is the theme of resurrection, that that death that was brought about by Adam has been conquered by Christ through his very resurrection. And at the culmination of all things at the end of his coming, the final enemy to be defeated is death. We are in a place right now where Christ is ruling. And these things are being put under his feet. And one day, the final enemy to be defeated is death. And we look forward to that day. And Paul says, it is just like Christ. Christ was the first fruit. So there is more fruit coming. And by being in Christ, we get to be part of that fruit. We are going to be resurrected just like Christ if we are in him. So, let's ask the question, what is resurrection? When the Bible talks about resurrection, what is it? Well, it comes from a Greek word, anastasis, and its compound, compound um, word has ana, which means to bring up. It's this idea of motion up, okay? And then stasis, which is to stand, right? So it's standing back up. Christ came out of the grave and he stood back up, right? When we read Luke 24, what does he do? He comes to them in a body, that's been revitalized and, and made new. And Thomas is worrying, and Jesus says, reach out, touch my hands, touch my side, see that it is I, right? And he eats with them. He says, look, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as I do. So Jesus is the prototype of what is going to happen to us. Okay? Now, predominantly... Resurrection is a New Testament idea, predominantly. But it is talked about in the Old Testament. Not a lot, but it is hidden in all these little nuggets. Let's, uh, let's just look at a few references just to get an idea. So that we see that it's not a surprise. God spoke of resurrection in the Old Testament. And there was at least some hope of it. And there's a reason why... There were Pharisees that believed in the resurrection and Sadducees that didn't. Culture, you know, had influenced Judaism to a point where some didn't believe in the resurrection. But through the reading of the Old Testament, there were teachers who believed in resurrection. So, let's go to Job chapter 19. And we're just going to skim through these ones simply, simply because they're quick references to show you that there is language of resurrection in the Old Testament, okay? So, first reference is Job, chapter 19, 
Job is a very, very old book. Some scholars think that it was actually the first recorded entry into the Hebrew Scriptures. So, Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 26. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end, he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. So, Job, in this ancient literature, knew that he was going to die. And yet his hope, his hope was that he would see God in his flesh. Not disembodied as a spirit, but in his flesh he would see God. Even though after everything had corrupted and wasted away, one day he trusted that he would look at God in his flesh. Next reference. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19. Isaiah 26 and verse 19. We'll give you guys a minute to flip there. talking about the vindication of God's people, future hope. Verse 19 reads this. Your dead bodies will live. Their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring out the departed lives, or departed spirits, depending on your translation. Um, I'm going to digress just for a moment because the chapter before this talks about something that's significant and that's going to tie into later on in John's eschatology and Revelation. But the exact same language that's in Revelation is actually present in Isaiah, a chapter before. It says, on this mountain, this is 25-7, if you guys want to just look back a chapter. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace for the whole earth, from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. You guys ever heard that, that phrase before that he's going to wipe away every tear and destroy death? That's Revelation chapter 21. It's almost like God is trying to tell a story to many generations, right? So keep that in mind. Now, another eschatological, so end times prediction about uh, resurrection can be seen in Daniel. So go to the end of the book of Daniel to chapter 12. Again, we're not going to go into the exegesis of these particular passages. I'm just going to show that resurrection is part of it. So Daniel chapter 12, we're going to look at verse 2. And we're going to jump down to 13. We might as well start at 1. It's talking about judgment. So at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to eternal life, some to disgrace in eternal contempt. And 
Jumping down to verse 13. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, and then you will stand to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of the days. Okay? You notice the language between Isaiah and Daniel is similar, about people coming out from the dust to have eternal life? Keep that in mind, because the imagery comes up again in the New Testament. So finally, one more quote from the Old Testament. This is Hosea chapter 13. And in fact, Paul quotes this in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So this is Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol, which is understood to be the, the, the place of the dead or the grave. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So we see in the Old Testament this idea of those who are in the grave, those who are in the dust. God will take them from that place, reanimate them and bring them to eternal life. That the defeat of death somehow is tied to eternal life in resurrection. So resurrection is the hope of the gospel. Right? The disciples, when Jesus was crucified, they ran away. They went and they hid. And then it was when Christ was resurrected that they started to see the truth of his message of the kingdom of God, and it drove them to live the lives that they had. Now, of course, they had the spirit of Pentecost that empowered them to do so, but it was the message that Christ has been raised, that man had defeated death through the power of God. So this is our hope. Can somebody quote John 3.16? Kids? Anybody remember that verse? Yeah? Go ahead, I'm sorry. Okay. God gave his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish. That death would not be final, but that they would have everlasting life. We are embodied beings. Christ came as a man. Book of Hebrews in chapter 2 says that Christ was made like us in every way. Right? He came to help Abraham's offspring. Right? So that being tempted in every way like we are, he could become a faithful and merciful and understanding high priest. The incarnation is so important when we think about eternal life. That Christ truly came from the Virgin Mary, the Lord is God incarnate. When we think about our final hope, we need to look at Christ. So, every Sunday, we take the bread and the cup. And they represent the death of our Savior in the body and the raising of our Savior in the body, that he's coming soon, that he's coming again. This is essential. And so, the death of the body and the, the raising up of the body is tied into our hope. So, 
Let's move on to Romans 8. And then we'll ask a few questions and start going through these points. So right now, by the Spirit, we are walking in faith. We are pursuing the Lord. We're being sanctified. We're trying to build the kingdom. We're trying to endeavor with the Lord to rescue people out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light through the gospel. And what's it all for? What is it all for? Romans chapter 8 talks about the cosmic purpose of Jesus, his incarnation, and the resurrection to bring about this change. So Romans chapter 8, verse 18. <coughs> Romans 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation, all of God's created order, eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. It was in this hope that we were saved. So Paul talking about all of creation groaning because of sin, needing to be released from this bondage. Paul ties it together with the redemption of our bodies. So the cosmic redemption of everything comes part and parcel with the revealing of God's sons and the redemption of our bodies. So resurrection is a huge part of God reconciling all things to himself. So, we've spoken about what resurrection is, very briefly, so looking at Christ as the first fruits. So, do you guys know what the first fruits means as an idiom? Like that, that phrase? Kids, do you know what first fruits are? Yes. That's right, right? So, your first fruit of apples, what happens after you get your first apple? You get more. That's right, right? So when Paul talks about Jesus being the first fruits, about resurrection, that means that everything that comes after is like him, right? So if Jesus is the first fruits, we are going to be the fruit that comes after. And the fruit that comes after is the same as the first fruit, okay? So this is why. Christology and the Incarnation are so important, right? Because we want to look at eternal life in view of what happened with Jesus because he is the first fruit. Here's something to consider. In 2 John, verse 7, John says that we're not supposed to receive anybody who doesn't affirm that Jesus came in the flesh. He says that's actually the spirit of Antichrist, to deny that Christ was incarnate. It's also 
heretical to think that Jesus wasn't raised in the body. So make sure that's in the back of your mind all the time. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Okay, good point. So, when we talk about heresy, we talk, they are ideas and beliefs, affirmations that bar you from being in the faith, right? So, for example, we look at the creed. If someone were to say that there was more than one God, that would be heresy, right? If someone were to say that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, that the Holy Spirit didn't conceive him, that would be a heresy. That would put you out of faith. Right? So that's what I mean, and, and this is what, what John was saying, is that if someone says to you that Christ didn't come in the flesh, says don't receive that person. Right? That is a, a litmus test to show us whether that person is truly in the faith or not. Okay? So in, in chapter 2 of Philippians, talks about Christ and his humility, emptying himself and assuming the form of the servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man and humbled himself, even to death on the cross, he's exalted. Right? So God, the essence of God, puts on flesh and redeems mankind in the flesh so that the promise could be made. And if you just... Turn a page over, maybe it's not a page over in your Bibles, but go to the next chapter. Paul says that Christ, in verse 21, will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So we could go on and on about this idea of resurrection and redemption being tied to Christ as the incarnation and us as embodied people. Um, on your own time, I'd like you to look at something else as well. If you go into Acts chapter 2, and then in harmony or parallel to that, read Acts chapter 13. So one is Peter's sermon, and the other is Paul's sermon. One's in Jerusalem, one's in Antioch. And both of those gospels center on the idea of Christ being embodied and his body not seeing corruption, but rather being raised back to life. So immortality, which Christ possesses, was accessed, once he became incarnate, was accessed to him through resurrection. In Romans chapter 8, it says that the spirit raised Christ back to life. This is in chapter 8, about halfway through. We'll get to that verse later. But, eternal life and the representation of eternal life is through resurrection.
Just making sure I haven't missed anything here. So let's let's go to the next question. So who? So we've looked at what is the resurrection. And now let's ask, for whom is this resurrection to eternal life given? So there's two groups. We open with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in that passage, it says this. In Christ, all will be made alive. And then there's this little word that says, but. But. Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. And then afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. <coughs> so we're going to look at Paul. We're going to look at John. Some other places on who gets this eternal life? Is resurrection guaranteed? Um, sorry, not resurrection, but is resurrection to eternal life guaranteed to all people? Because we need to know, right? Is this just for saved people or is this for everybody? And I think scripture teaches that resurrection unto eternal life is only given to those who are in Christ. So Paul says, all will be made alive in Christ, but in their own order. First, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward, as is coming, those who belong to Christ. So, let's look at two groups. Those people who are in Christ, and those people who are not in Christ. John 3.16 John was quoted earlier, that those who believe in Christ would not perish, but would have everlasting life. John is really good at laying out this idea of eternal life and resurrection. And there's a good progression um, where if you read the book, John makes points and Jesus makes points, and they all add together to give us this, this doctrine. So, let's go to John 5. A couple years ago, Forrest connected uh, John 5 to Daniel 12, and it was, it was quite good. And this is another area where they connect. Uh, he was talking about the Son of Man at the time, but today it's actually about resurrection. So in verse 25 of John chapter 5, Jesus says, I'll actually start 24, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming, and, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming... When all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but to those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. So you see, resurrection as a theme unto judgment for two groups of people, but one group of people gets eternal life, the other people get condemnation. 
Now, Jesus does a couple amazing things. Feeds 5,000 people, walks on water, and then there's another time of teaching. And we're in chapter 6 now. Jesus is talking about the bread of life. He says, everyone to the Father, sorry, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 38 of chapter 6. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but, listen very carefully here, because this is going to build on things later, but he should raise them up on the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. On the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So those given to Christ, who are in Christ, are kept. They are never lost. And Christ promises that he will raise them up on the last day. Bodily recreation from the dust of the earth to stand up back again. All who have ever died will be brought back to life to stand before God for judgment or reward. want to turn a couple more chapters over to John 11. We're going to see this all over again. So as Jesus goes about his ministry, teaching his disciples, these ideas are nurtured in their minds, so much so that when Lazarus, a very close friend of Jesus, when he dies, there is an opportunity for a miracle, and he interacts with his sister Martha. Martha is super upset and yet she possesses in her this hope of resurrection. So Jesus comes and he's about to bring Lazarus back to life. Verse 20 of chapter 11. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, listen carefully, this is her expressing her belief that Jesus had been teaching her for the last, you know, the, the, the ministry that he'd been in, for however long that had been. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So already his disciples have this idea that eternal life and rising again happens at the last day and it's for those who are in him. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. So if you believe in Christ, even though you die, you will live. And if you live believing in him, you will never die after that. It's a, actually a really neat construction in the Greek 
Um, if you go to Bible Hub one day, you can read this. But there's this emphatic, no, never die forever. Uh, that's how it's parsed out. But Jesus says, if you live and believe in me, you shall not die forever. Meaning that if you're not in Christ, that wrath of God, the pain of death, remains upon you. One group is promised eternal life, having overcome death in Christ, and the other is not promised that. It is a resurrection to shame and contempt, judgment and death. One last passage. Go to Philippians again. And this is just about the idea of two separate groups, okay? Right? Resurrection to eternal life, redemption of the body is for those in Christ. And Paul says destruction for those outside. So chapter 3, verse 17. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. They are focused on earthly things. Right? So destruction for the enemies of Christ. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. All right, the when. We've said this a few times now in the passages that we've read. Kids, who has been listening? When did Jesus say that he would raise everyone up that are in him? The last day. The last day. Very good. Okay. So we asked the question of when. So this is another great area where the Bible actually speaks with one voice and you can you can compare different scriptures together to build a picture so if we go to Revelation chapter 20 and chapter 21 and also remember that this was same language in Isaiah it was the same language given in Isaiah you see something happening so at the end of chapter 20, you see this great white throne judgment where death and Hades give up their dead. And then they're judged and thrown into the lake of fire. And the devil and the beast and the false prophet, all of them go into this lake of fire, which John calls the second death. And after this big event of judgment and all evil being taken care of and destroyed by God, you see a new creation coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, pay attention, this is important. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. So God comes to 
the new heaven and new earth, and he dwells with us. We don't go to be with him. He comes to us, and they will be his God. Okay? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There's no more grief, crying, or pain, because the previous things have passed away. So when you see the transition into this new heaven and new earth, John, in the new creation, says that death is no more and God is dwelling with mankind. Now when you read 1 Corinthians 15, keep that in mind. What does Paul say? Paul says the last enemy to be defeated is death. Right? The very last enemy to be defeated is death. Now, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says there's a way in which death is defeated. So let's go there. So we know this happens at the end, because that's what Revelation says. We know that in direct teaching by Paul, that he says it's the last enemy to be defeated. Now when you go to verse 51, pay close attention. Paul says, listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal body must be clothed with immortality. And when, so this is the important part, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. Okay? So the defeat of death is the re resurrection of the saints into immortality that happens at the end. When the new creation comes and we're all brought up at the last day and given immortality, that is when death is defeated. Something else to note is that Paul says, not all of us are going to fall asleep. In other words, sleep is a, is a metaphor for death. And, and Jesus says the same thing with uh, Lazarus when he had died. He said he'd fallen asleep. And they're like, well, no, he's dead. He's like, yes, of course, he's dead. But I was using a metaphor. He was sleeping, right? But Paul says, not all of us are going to fall asleep. Some of us are going to be changed when Christ comes. And others are going to be pulled out of the graves. But in an instant, we're all changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will all be changed. We will be changed. Okay? So we have Revelation chapter 20, when the old way of things is totally wiped clean, and we have a new way that comes. We're resurrected to immortality, and we're all changed. Some of us are brought from the grave and changed and resurrected others are changed on the spot there's one other scripture that actually goes really well with this and that is uh, 1 Thessalonians if you would just turn there with me quickly this idea is actually really well developed in the New Testament through multiple authors And I want to emphasize this idea of togetherness. Right? John, in quoting Jesus, talks about everybody being resurrected at the end. 
together, right? Um, Paul talks about being together in resurrection at the end. So this passage in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians reads like this, starting in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So in the same way that Christ rose from the dead, those who are asleep will be brought. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We, who are still alive at the Lord's coming, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. I'm going to read that again. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so there's this idea of togetherness. Those who are in the graves are brought up. Those who are alive at his coming will be caught up in the air, and it is us together that are changed. And he says, and so we will always be with the Lord. So togetherness. It's the same time. It happens at the same time. So I'd like to read just one more passage that talks about the same thing. And it's this idea that eternal life is granted through resurrection and it happens at the time when there's a transition between one age and the next. In uh, Luke chapter 20, jump there now, let me give you guys a minute. Luke says the same thing in a, a different way. And so, chapter 20 of Luke, starting in uh, verse 27, we see an argument or Jesus contending with the Sadducees about resurrection. And oftentimes we, we look at this passage thinking about divorce and marriage and stuff, but it's actually more about resurrection than anything. So starting at verse 27 of Luke 20. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. So they're trying to stump Jesus. And Jesus told them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they can no longer die, because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Luke says three important, or Jesus says three important things in this passage. One, that 
to take part in the age that is coming, one has to be counted worthy. To be counted worthy, you need to be forgiven of sin. Right? Which is what last week was all about. We will not be worthy if we are not found in Christ. So for all of us, we need to consider that. Second of all, no longer dying is equated with participating in that resurrection. Right? To be a child of the resurrection. And also there's this idea of participation in in the age to come. So I think it's reasonably clear that resurrection happens at the end of the age in the transition between the world as we know it now under all the systems that we have and the world that is coming. And in that moment when we're resurrected to eternal life, that is when death is defeated and that is the end of this age. I don't think I need to go on long about where it happens um, because as we've spoken about it here, it's coming out from the dust of the earth, right? It's God coming, Christ coming to the earth and calling us out and changing us. And then we see a new creation. We come out from the graves. So finally, we have to ask this question then. Is mankind naturally immortal? I think the clear answer from Scripture is that immortality is something that we have to put on. It's something that God conditionally gives to us if we are in Christ. Romans 6 talks all about that. Well, if we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. And therefore, if we're in his death, we'll also be raised like him. And since Christ will never die again, neither shall we. But it's also in the order of resurrection. Immortality is to be sought. Romans 2.6 says that for those who in persistence in doing good seek immortality, they shall be getting glory and honor and eternal life. Who seek immortality. The Spirit gives us immortality. And so we come to our life now. What does this mean for us? The Spirit is what will resurrect us at the end. In Romans 8, it says, verse 11, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. So we have this great hope that one day we will be resurrected to life through the Spirit. But because we have the Spirit now, we need to live to God. That is what the Spirit's for, is to, to have holiness and have righteousness and reconciliation to God in the now, to share the divine nature. So let us, with hope, hold on to this promise, knowing that God is working in creation, that he's going to restore all things, and that we get to partake in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though we as mankind were taken from the dust, your spirit will cause us to live forever if we have been washed by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for your incredible grace, for your plan and creation to bring all enemies 
and make them Christ's footstool so that God can be all in all, that we get to participate in that kingdom as co-heirs of Jesus Christ, as your children, and that we will, in body, through glorification, partake of the divine nature forever and ever in a perfect creation. We love you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.